Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2104 of our trek to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we are continuing our ongoing series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This first series of messages will cover the Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. And today's message is from the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a Christian's character, the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. So follow along on the message. I would appreciate your prayers as I bring the message this morning. I know by the feel of my body, I'm running on fumes right now. <clears throat> Been a long week, but first of all, I want to thank everybody for your prayers this week, for those that were able to give food, the ladies group and others that were gave food. Oh, it's so appreciated. We had more than enough, believe you me. So if Paul and I come in 50 pounds heavier next week, you know it's so we could get rid of all the food. <laughs> but I do appreciate it. This family here at Putnam is a real special family to us, and I praise the Lord for it. <clears throat> Today we're going to look, continue on our eight-week series on the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the second week. Last week we did an overview with um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and the Sermon on the Mount covers Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So it was quite a long sermon. In Matthew records 107 verses. Last week we just had an introduction and we talked about, and I brought my prop back this week. I hope those that were here last week don't mind. But if you remember, Christ in the Sermon on the Mount established a Christian counterculture. He turned the world upside down because the Sermon on the Mount covers areas that's contrary to today's modern culture. And what we want to do as disciples of Christ, as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, he uses us to turn the world upside down. And it's up to us to establish his kingdom here on earth. So today we want to move on to what's commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. Now everyone who has ever heard of Jesus of Nazareth and knows anything at all about his teaching is probably familiar with the Beatitudes, or probably the most cherished passages within all of the Scripture and certainly the New Testament. And it's where the Sermon on the Mount just begins, though. And we tend to look at the Beatitudes as the Sermon on the Mount, but it's just a small segment of it. But that's what we're going to cover today in verses 3 through 12 of Matthew chapter 5, and it's on page 1501 in your pew Bibles. So if you want to look at that, I will reach, read each verse today as we go through the Beatitudes. So keep your Bibles open and read along with me as I go through each verse. <clears throat> Let us consider the Beatitudes in detail. The first four Beatitudes describe the, create, the Christian's relationship to God, and the last four, the Christian's relationship to the duties of their, to their fellow humans. So let's start with verse 3. The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Old Testament supplies the necessary background against which to interpret the beatitudes. At first, the poor meant those who 
were poor in a literal sense. When we think of the poor, we think of those that don't have a lot of earthly resources. But gradually, because of the needy had no refuge but God, poverty became to, to have also some spiritual overtones and to be identified with the humble dependence on God. Thus, to be poor in spirit means to acknowledge our spiritual poverty. We may be the wealthiest person in the world. And because of where we live and our background, a lot of people think, well, those Chamberlains, most of us be really wealthy people. But what we see on the surface, <coughs> surface isn't always what we see <coughs> or what the reality is. So we want to focus today, though, on our spiritual poverty. To be poor in spirit means to acknowledge our spiritual poverty, indeed our spiritual bankruptcy, before a holy God. For we are sinners and are actually under the holy wrath of God and deserving nothing but judgment from God. <clears throat> we have nothing to offer within ourselves, nothing to plead, nothing for which we can buy favor into heaven. And that's why it's so special. Blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit, the kingdom of God is given to those who are. God's rule, which brings us salvation, is the gift that's absolutely free and utterly undeserved. It has to be received with dependent humility like a little child. And we'll get into the passages of, of having faith as a child. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus contradicted all human judgments and all nationalistic expectations of the kingdom of God. If you remember that nation of Israel <clears throat> thought they were the chosen people. And indeed they were. God focused on the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. But when Christ came, there was a dividing wall. And from that point on, the kingdom of God included all people of the world. And it is us as citizens of kingdoms. If you're a believer, if you've accepted Christ as your savior, then you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And it is up to us to build God's kingdom. The kingdom is given to those who are poor, not rich, to the feeble, not the mighty, to little children humble enough to accept it, not to soldiers who can boast that they can obtain it by skill. In Jesus' earthly ministry, it is not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom. They thought they were so rich. They thought they were rich in merit, and they thanked God for their attainments, how spiritual they were. It was not the zealots who dreamed of establishing a kingdom by blood and sword, and even some of the close, closest disciples to Christ were part of that group because they thought Christ was here to establish his kingdom today, not in a manner that they ever expected, though. But it was the publicans, the prostitutes, the rejects of the human society who knew they were so poor that they could offer nothing and achieve nothing. All they could do was to cry out to God for mercy, and he heard their cry. And still today, the end, indispensable condition of receiving the kingdom of God is to acknowledge our spiritual poverty. So I'm going at this a little bit different than what you might have heard the Beatitudes before, because I want us to get to the real heart 
of what Christ was proclaiming when he was establishing his kingdom. Remember, this was at the beginning of his earthly ministry. And these were his manifesto, chapters 5 through 7, were his marching orders for his disciples, for his citizens of his kingdom. So let's move on to Beatitude number 2, verse number 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. One might almost translate the second beatitude as the happy are unhappy. And it's to bring our attention to the startling paradox which it contains. What kind of sorrow can bring joy of Christ's blessings to those who feel it? The comfort is not offered primarily to those who mourn at a loss of a loved one like our family did this week. Yes, we mourned, but we also rejoiced. But this mourning is the loss of our innocence, our righteousness, and our self-respect. It is not the sorrow of grief, which Christ refers to, but the sorrow of repentance. Mourning and comfort is the second stage of the spiritual blessing. It is one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It is another to grieve and mourn over it. In a more theological language, confession is one thing, You can confess your sins, but contrition is something totally different. You may admit you sin, but if you don't repent and are sorry for that sin, it's empty. We need then to observe the Christian life according to Jesus. It is not all joy and laughter. Some Christians seem to imagine that they must wear the perpetual grin on their face and continuously be boisterous and bubbly. But how unbiblical can we be? The truth is, there are such things as Christian tears, and too few of us ever weep them. And I have to put myself in that. Sometimes I put on a facade, a, a hard shell, when I should be weeping over my own condition before the Lord. Jesus wept over the sins of others, over the bitter consequences in judgment and death and over an impertinent city, Jerusalem, which would not receive him. We too should weep over the evil in our world, as did the godly men and women of biblical times. Paul wrote of the false teachers troubling the churches in his day. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul wrote, For, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. However, it is not only for the sin of others that we should have tears, for we have our own sins that we should weep over as well. Have they never caused us any grief? Was Paul wrong to groan in Romans chapter 7, verse 24? What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. I don't think so. I think we need some times of introspection some times of mourning, some times of tears that we might mourn for those that we love and for ourselves. I fear that evangelical Christians, by making much of grace, which grace is greater than all of our sins, and praise the Lord for that, but sometimes we make light of sin because of it. There is not enough sorrow for sin among us. And we should experience more godly grief and Christian repentance in our personal lives and for the church and for the the world. 
Such, mourn, such mourn, mourners who mourn for their sinfulness will only be comforted by the only comfort that can relieve their distress, namely the free forgiveness of God. The greatest of all comforts is absolution, pronounced with every contrite mourning sinner. He was to be our comforter who would bind up the brokenhearted. Christ does, not, Christ does pour oil on our wounds and speaks peace to our sore, scarred consciences. Only in the final stages of glory will Christ's comfort be complete, and only then will sin be no more, and only then will he wipe away every tear from our eyes. The tears that we experienced with my passing of dad were tears of mourning, but they were also tears of joy because of the precious legacy that he left our family. But let's move on to Beatitude number three, verse number five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The Greek adjective parous means meek, gentle, humble, considerate, courteous, and therefore exercising self-control Without, which without these qualities would be impossible. Although we rightly recoil at times from an image of our Lord, a gentle Savior, meek and mild, because it conjures up a weak and effeminate Savior, yet he is described as meek, parous, and lowly in heart. And Paul referred to him, referred to his meekness and gentleness. So, and here's a big $5 word for you, linguistically. So linguistically speaking, it is quite correct to refer to those in this beatitude as those that are meek are gentle in spirit. It seems important to note that in the beatitudes, the meek come between those who mourn over their sin and those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The particular form of meekness which Christ requires in his disciples will indeed have something to do with this sequence we see in the Beatitudes. I believe it is the right emphasis that this meekness devote, de, denotes a humble and gentle attitude toward others, determined by an accurate estimate of ourselves. It is comparatively easy to be honest with ourselves if we allow ourselves to be honest before God and acknowledge that we're to ourselves that we're sinners in His sight, but how much more difficult is it to allow other people to say the same things about us? Especially about me. I instinctively resent people telling me that I'm doing something wrong or that I've sinned. It grates me. It may be easier to condemn ourselves than allow others to condemn us. And sometimes we need it. And if we're loving Christian brothers and sisters, sometimes we need to Encourage others that are struggling. Meekness is essentially an accurate view of oneself, expressing its attitude and conduct concerning others. Meekness makes you gentle, humble, sensitive, and patient in your dealing with others. These meek people, Jesus added, what will happen to them? They shall inherit the earth. One would have expected the opposite. One would say that meek people get nowhere because everyone ignores them and rides roughshod over them 
and tramples them underfoot. I consider Paula a meek person. Of course, you guys don't know her well as I do, so sometimes she's not. But I know in her life, she at times feels like she's invisible. The people don't even acknowledge that she's there. And there's been times, and I've witnessed it, that it's almost as if she was, was not there. And it's because of her meek, sweet attitude that she's that way. But you would think it's the demanding and overbearing who succeed in the struggle for existence that the meek and the weakless sort of fade into the, into the wall. Even the children of Israel, you might say, had to fight for their inheritance. So shouldn't we? But if we look at it, the Lord God gave them the promised land. But the condition which we must enter spiritual inheritance in Christ is not might, but meekness. For we have already seen everything is already ours in Christ. We don't have to fight for what we, we want or have because we have it in Christ. The same principle operates today. The godless modern culture, which has turned the world upside down, boast about their weight and throw it around. Yet actually, actual possessions, true godly inheritance eludes them. They seek after what they can't have because they're seeking in the wrong way, in the wrong places. On the other hand, the meek may be deprived and disfranchised in our modern culture, by our modern culture, yet because they know, we know, what it is to live and reign with Christ. And we can enjoy and possess the earth because it all belongs in Christ. So let's move on to our fourth beatitude, verse number six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will, shall be filled. God has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. The general pr principle here is personal. The hungry and thirsty whom God satisfies are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Such spiritual hunger is a characteristic or should be a characteristic of all God's people. Whose supreme ambition is not the material world that we see and fight for today, but the spiritual Christians are not like the modern culture, which has turned the world upside down, like we spoke of last week, who are pre preoccupied by pursuing possessions. Christ's disciples, which if we're his disciple, that includes us, have set themselves to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Our hunger for righteousness drives our appetites for our bodies as well. You think about when you're really hungry, you do about anything to get something to eat. And here in America, a lot of times we don't really need it even. But Proverbs 16, chapter, or verse, chapter 16, verse 26 tells us, the appetite of the laborers works for them, their hunger drives them on. And the proverb there is saying, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt for somebody to be a bit hungry because then it forces them to do what's necessary 
in order to obtain what they need. In the same way we can do look so, so spiritually. Righteousness in the Bible has at least three aspects, legal, moral, and social. Legal righteousness is justification. And the term I'd always go back to is just as if I've never sinned is our justification. And that's how we stand before Christ. We are completely justified. It doesn't depend on us. The Jews pursued righteousness, but they failed to attain it because they pursued it in the wrong way. They thought the law would save them, and keeping the law would save them. It never did. The law was to point out how short we fall from God's righteousness. They sought to establish their own righteousness and did not submit to God's righteousness, which is Christ himself. Moral righteousness is the righteousness of character and conduct which pleases God. So the, the first one was legal righteousness. That's we're justified before God. Moral righteousness is the character and conduct that pleases God. That's how we live everyday life. Are we moral? Are we ethical? That's a moral righteousness that as believers, as disciples, as citizens of God's kingdom that we're supposed to pursue. Jesus goes on after the Beatitudes to contrast Christian righteousness, that's us, with Pharisaic righteousness. That's doing things because it's a set of rules. The latter is external conformity to rules. The former is an inward righteousness of heart, mind, and motive. For this, we should hunger and thirst after. However, we're missing many times the last aspect of that, which is a social righteousness. For biblical righteousness is more private and a personal affair, but when we include social righteousness, we learn from the law and the prophets that social righteousness is concerned with seeking man's liberation from oppression. Together with the promotion of civil rights, justice in the law courts, integrity in business dealings, and to be honorable in home and family affairs. This is when we reach out to others. The first one is Christ's relationship to us. The second one is our relationship living a godly life. And the third is our relationship on how we treat others. And I know there's a lot of controversy with immigration and a host of other things today. But as believers, we need to work for social righteousness also. For treating others as we would want to be treated. Christians are committed to hunger for righteousness in the whole human community as something that's pleasing to a righteous God. So now we're looking back at the first four Beatitudes. We reveal a spiritual progression with a relentless logic. Each step takes us to the next and presupposes the one that was before it. The second half of the Beatitudes, the last four, we seem to turn even more from an attitude toward God to our attitude for fellow human beings. And that takes us to the fifth beatitude, verse number seven, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is compassion for people in need. Jesus does not specify the categories of people he has in mind to whom the disciples, we, his disciples, should show mercy. There is no need for Jesus to elaborate. Our God is merciful and shows mercy continuously, and as citizens of his kingdom, we must show mercy to others also. Of course, our modern culture is unmerciful. 
You hear about the cancel culture today. Unmerciful. You hear about people trashing others. And, and this is on all sides of the fence. It's not just liberal or, or conservative. Everywhere we see the trashing of other people. And of all people, we as the church, as citizens of God's kingdom, we cannot and should not take part in that. Of course, the modern culture is unmerciful, as indeed also the church at times in its worldliness has often been. Over through the ages, the church, unfortunately, hasn't been much better at times. But that doesn't mean we should turn away from the church because this is what God has established for us. The world prefers to insulate itself from, against these pains and calamities of humans. It finds revenge delicious and forgiveness by comparison somewhat tame. The universal law, and one thing that it has struck me over the years is there's a few universal laws. One is the law of gravity. If I jump off this stage or this platform, I'm going to fall or at least end up a couple steps down. The law of planting and harvesting is just as real as the law of gravity. What you plant, you will reap. You can't reap something if you don't plant it. And it covers both good and bad areas of our lives. I mean, sometimes we think of, yeah, they planted evil, so they'll reap evil. No, we're to plant good, so we'll reap good. Those who show mercy will find mercy. You can't expect to find mercy if you're not showing it to other people. It won't work because it's the laws of planting and harvesting. We cannot receive mercy and forgiveness unless we repent, and we cannot claim to have repented from our sins unless if we are unmerciful toward the sins of others. If we can't forgive other people's sins, how can we ever expect our sins to be forgiven? Nothing moves us to forgive like the knowledge that we have been for ourselves forgiven. Nothing moves more clearly that we have been shown mercy than our readiness to show mercy to others. To show mercy and to receive mercy. These belong inseparably together. You can't separate those. Just like planting and harvesting. Interpreted in the context of the Beatitudes, it is the meek who are also merciful. For to be meek is to acknowledge to others that we are sinners. And to be merciful is to have compassion on others, for they are sinners too. So let's move on to our sixth beatitude, verse number eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's immediately apparent in these words that in heart indicates a kind of purity that Jesus was indicating. Christ is looking for inward purity for those qualities of those who have been cleansed from moral as opposed to ceremonial defilement. In his controversy with the Pharisees, Jesus took up the theme and protested against the obsession with external ceremonial purity. And he, he wrote or said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. Does that describe us? We put on a facade of righteousness, but inside we're full of dead men's bones. I hope not. 
I strive not to. I pray for each one of you that we'll have, be of same mind on this. Christ wants to have a heart pure, though outwardly, a person who labors in the kitchen, who works in the sewer, who works in coal mines, who works in any other field that might get physically dirty. That's not what Christ is talking about. Though a common laborer may stink outwardly, inwardly he is pure incense before God because he ponders the word of God in his heart and obeys it. We have to do both, ponder and obey. Jesus emphasizes emphasis on the inward and the moral, whether contrasted with the outward and the ceremonial or the external and physical, is consistent with the whole Sermon on the Mount. This is what he's talking about. This is his manifesto. The sermon requires heart righteousness rather than mere rule righteousness. And we as Christians fall into that trap because we love to follow a set of rules. If we know we do X, Y, Z and are spiritual, that's what we want because it's so easy to follow instead of doing what we need to in our heart. The pure in heart are single-minded, free from any tyranny of divided self. In this case, the pure in heart is the single heart that prepares a way for a single eye, which we'll read about in Matthew chapter 6 in a, a couple or three weeks. The single focus. More precisely, the primary reference to the heart, the pure in heart, is sincerity. This type of heart includes our thoughts and our motives. How sincere are we? It is pure, unmixed with anything devious or any ulterior motives. Hypocrisy and deceit are abhorrent to the pure in heart because the pure in heart are to be without guile. Yet few of us live one life and live it in the open. We are tempted to wear different type of mask. And I wish I looked like this, a manly man. But that's not what we're to do. We're not to put on one face for church and one face for work and one face when we get around our buddies, and one face when we get around our family. We're to be single-minded. No mask. Take your mask off. And I think about the mask they wore in, in the um, Elizabethan era or whatever, when they had those dances and they would wear masks to hide their, who they really were. But this duplicity is not reality, it's play acting. It's the essence of hypocrisy. Some people weave around themselves such a web of lies that they can no longer tell which part of them is genuine and which part is make-believe. I've seen people like this. I just pray that I'm not. I've seen people, they've lied so much about who they are that they've come to believe it. Jesus Christ was the only person who was genuinely pure in heart, so we realize this because he was the only one who was entirely truthful. I know, Declan, I'm going a little long. <laughs> only the pure in heart will see God and see him with the eye of faith and see his glory in the hereafter. For only an utterly when we're utterly sincere, can we bear the dazzling vision whose lights the darkness of deceit and must vanish the fire of all the facades so that they're burn up. 
Let's move on to our seventh beatitude, verse number nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. You want to be a child of God, to be called a child of God? The sequence of thought from purity of heart to peacemaking is a natural one. Because the most frequent causes of conflict is scheming when we're not who we say we are. While openness and sincerity are essential to have pure and true reconciliation. According to this beatitude, every Christian was meant to be a peacemaker, a peacemaker in home, in community, and in church. It is clear beyond the question throughout the teachings of Jesus that his apostles should never seek to be in conflict or be responsible for it unless you're being forced to turn from your loyalty to Christ and forced into some sort of mold of the modern culture. Then it's not peacemaking. We're not to be peace at any price. On the contrary, we are called to peace, though. We are to pursue peace actively. We are to seek peace with everyone. Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul tells us, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Peacemaking is a divine work. It's not something that we have naturally. For peace means reconciliation, and God is the author of peace and reconciliation. We should understand, though, that peace, the words peace and appeasement are not synonyms. For the peace of God is not a peace at any price. He made peace with us at immense cost, even the price of the lifeblood of his only son. We too, though in our lesser ways, will find peacemaking a costly experience. To proclaim peace, peace, when there is no peace, is the work of the false prophet not the Christian witness. True peace and true forgiveness are costly treasures. Are we peacemakers? Do we promote peace? Now, we might not even be personally involved in a dispute, but we may find ourselves struggling to reconcile two people or two parties or two groups who are estranged and at loggerheads with each other. And in this case, the pain may come from listening, from ridding ourselves of our own prejudices, from striving sympathetically to understand the opposing points of view so we can help to bring peace, from risking being misunderstood, mocked as ingratitude, or even failure in the peace process. Jesus prayed for the oneness of his people. He also prayed that they might be kept from the evil and kept in truth. We have no mandate from Christ to seek unity without purity, though. We can't be unified for unity's sake. We have to be pure with our unity. We are to maintain both purity in doctrine and conduct. And that leads us to our last beatitude for today, beatitude number eight, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you people when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Now, it may seem, say, seem strange that Jesus should pass from peacemaking to persecution, from the work of reconciliation to experiencing hostility. Yet, however hard we may try to make peace with some people, they refuse to live peaceably with us. And not all attempts at reconciliation succeed. And indeed, some will take the initiative to oppose us, and to, in particular, to insult or slander us. Persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilably value systems, the world's modern culture and Christ's culture. They're unreconcilable. We can't bring peace to a modern culture without it being based on the manifesto of Christ found in the Sermon on the Mount. How did Jesus expect his disciples to react under persecution, and how would you react? Verse 12, it tells us to rejoice and be glad. We are not to re retaliate like an unbeliever, nor to sulk like a child, nor to lick our wounds and self-pity like a dog, not to just grin and bear it like a stoic. Still less are we to pre pretend that we enjoy it like a masochist. What should we do then? We are to rejoice because Christians should rejoice at all times, be joyful at all times, and leap for joy. And why should we do this? Well, partly, Jesus added, great is your reward in heaven. When we rejoice, our reward in heaven will be great. When we're persecuted, we may lose everything on earth, but shall inherit everything in heaven. Not a reward of merit. However, because what we're given is a free gift from God. We rejoice in part because of persecution is a token of our genuineness. If we're persecuted for Christ, it means that we're a genuine Christian, a certificate of our Christian authenticity. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before them. And if we are persecuted today, we belong to a noble succession of those who were persecuted for Christ. But the primary reason that we should rejoice is that we're suffering because of our stand for Jesus. On account of our loyalty to him and his standards for truth and righteousness. Yet in all of this, the values and standards of Jesus directly conflict with our modern world, our modern culture. And remember last week, if you were here, Christ didn't turn the world upside down. The world was already upside down. Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, he turns the world right side up. And the only way that this world is going to be turned right side up once again through his kingdom is if we as citizens of his kingdom, as disciples of Jesus Christ, work diligently to build his kingdom. And we do this by taking on the character traits that are found in the Beatitudes that we went through today. So turn the world right side up as a citizen of Christ. Our culture of the world is a counterculture to Christ. We are at loggerheads with each other. In brief, the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitudes, each one start is, starts with blessed. And why does he say that? He congratulates those whom the modern culture rejects. If you're rejected by the modern culture, that's okay. Because Christ calls the rejects of this world Blessed.
I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.